Welcome to this episode of the Think Anesthesia podcast. I am Amanda Shelby, the Think Anesthesia content coordinator for Jurox Incorporated, a part of Zoetis. In this episode, I get the distinct pleasure to interview Dr. Michelle Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez is the owner and medical director of the Rascal Unit, a mobile sterilization and wellness clinic serving rural areas in Ohio. She is also an independent forensic veterinarian based in Dublin, Ohio, which will be the focus of our conversation. She is a graduate of the Ohio State University, completed a rotating internship at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and she has a master's degree in veterinary forensics from the University of Florida, go Gators, and a master's in forensic psychology from the Southern New Hampshire University. Welcome, Dr. Gonzalez. Thanks, Amanda, for having me. I would like to start with what is veterinary forensics? So overall, veterinary forensics is the application of veterinary medicine to the legal field. So anything that is forensics means that it's potentially going to be used legally. So you have forensic accountants that investigate accounting for legal procedures. So you don't have to have necessarily a degree to be a forensic veterinarian. You just have to practice veterinary medicine and then have that used in the legal system. That is very interesting. Tell us a little about the program you're currently enrolled in and how that complements you being a veterinarian with an interest and obviously degrees in veterinary forensics. So my initial interest was definitely veterinary forensics. I went into that after working in some animal cruelty cases. So after finishing that master's, then that opened the question of why do people do this? So then that started me into the path of forensic psychology. But then after I had completed the veterinary forensics and the forensic psychology master's, there is a little bit of a disconnect between the veterinary field and the human field. You know, clearly there's a lot more resources for humans. So I started the master's course in forensic science, also online from the University of Florida, to learn how human cases are prosecuted or investigated. And then that way, try to incorporate some of that knowledge into veterinary forensics and try to expand the field, make it better. That's very interesting. And is there a link between people who use animal abuse and domestic abuse or other crimes? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of study into how people that commit animal abuse and animal cruelty, it relates to interpersonal violence. And even people that are serial killers and really severe crimes, they have earlier instances where they have abused or killed an animal. Um, They call them steps. They start there and then they just continue on into more advanced forms of crimes. The other way that it's linked is that there are some people, especially in cases, for instance, of domestic violence, where an abuser will actually use the animal against the victim. So they will use it to control them. They will use it to make them do things. They will use it to make them stay. Yeah, the human-animal bond is a very powerful thing, so that does make sense that an abuser would use that as leverage to control the victim. What role or obligations do the veterinary team have in identifying animal cruelty or abuse and subsequently potentially even interpersonal domestic abuse? There's two ways of looking at it. One is looking at it from a moral and ethical 
perspective, just as an individual, if I see something, I feel that I need to say something because morally I feel obligated to help somebody that is in need. But depending on the state, there are now legislations which mandate that a veterinarian, the veterinary team, animal humane officers are mandated to report cases of animal abuse, or if they think that there is domestic violence, child abuse, elderly violence, they are mandated to report it. Can you describe some of the characteristics or signatures that would identify a situation that is either animal cruelty or abuse from the veterinarian's perspective? So as veterinarians, we are kind of like investigators anyway, right? It's like we get an animal and then we don't know what's going on and we have to figure out what's wrong with them. Veterinary forensics is somewhat similar. So somebody brings you in an animal that is injured and they tell you the story of what happened. And then as a doctor, you look at it and you have to figure out, does the story fit? And sometimes the story doesn't fit because people may be just ignorant or they don't know, but sometimes it doesn't fit because they're lying. So that's one of the biggest things is if somebody brings you an animal that is clearly injured and the story just doesn't fit. A quick example, we had a dog that came in with a broken leg and the person said that it had fallen off a curb. Well, a curb is very small. It was a small dog, but falling off a curb, you're not going to get a severe fracture the way that the dog got it. So after more investigation, we found out that the dog was kicked. So the story doesn't fit. You want to try to figure it out. Also, the demeanor of people in rooms. Sometimes you can see somebody being aggressive towards their children or towards their spouse. And immediately you see something like that, that kind of interaction, and you kind of get that spidey sense that something's not right. So those are the kind of things that we need to open our eyes and open our mind to what's happening within the examination room and even after we exit it. If you have a staff member, maybe your veterinary technician going in and collecting a history and they become suspicious, what is the process of involving the team and identifying these concerns and then documenting them appropriately? You bring a huge point, documentation. We need to have documentation of everything because if you are suspecting animal abuse, everything that is said, done, you know, everything that you see, it's going to be part of the legal system. So documentation is huge. The number one thing to tell everybody is to be safe. You don't want to put yourself in danger. If you think that this is somebody that is abusing an animal, this is somebody that could potentially turn around and abuse you. So we want to be safe. We don't want to be changing to the person. We want to come in and be understanding. And I know that it sounds hard if you think that somebody abused an animal, you feel wrong going in and being like, oh, yeah, I understand why you would do that. I understand why you would feel that. But that's what you want to do to keep that person calm and to try to get as much information as possible. You want to write everything. If the person is getting upset, then you want to change the conversation. Like, again, you don't want to put yourself in danger. You don't want to put the animal in danger. But you want to collect as much information as you as you can. If you're a technician, assistant, collecting the history in the room, you want to come out, let your veterinarian know what's happening, and then come up with a plan as far as what needs to be done. I don't know that we get great communication skills training for these mm-hmm. very potentially intense, emotionally charged interactions. Are there resources available for people in the trenches to help them communicate in these situations? 
Yeah, as the field of forensics and animal welfare in general is expanding, I think that there are more resources that are becoming available. So the ASPCA, I was actually looking today through their website, and they have some really good information on how to identify animal cruelty, what to do. Uh, they have something really interesting on how to know if a dog fight is a spontaneous dog fight or if it's organized dog fighting. There are different organizations like the International Veterinary Forensic Science Association, which is IVFSA.org. They do yearly conferences, they do seminars, they have newsletters with updates. A huge one is the link. I really recommend to everybody to sign up for the link and get their newsletter. The link was created to bring together the importance of animal cruelty and interpersonal violence. So they have all of this research and all of these resources on how to identify it, what to do when you see it, um, who you can call. Every state has different rules and uh, policies. So it has really good information overall to lead people, to help people with what to do. And then general conferences, like technicians and veterinarians attending, like the HSUS Animal Care Expo, and even some of the other larger conferences, they will often have some forensic veterinarians and animal welfare advocates that come in and talk on these different topics. I'm frantically trying to find the link website. It is nationallinkcoalition.org. I just quickly Google searched that National Link Coalition, and it did come up as the first Google search. So our listeners, if that is something that you want to subscribe to, that's the easiest way to find it. Thank you for that suggestion. It sounds like it's a rapidly growing area and that the resources are there, just learning where to find them and how to make them part of your routine review as you're learning more is probably the challenge we must overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In Ohio recently, we passed HB 33, which is the mandatory reporting. And it is really nice to have because prior to that existing, there was a concern that I saw even with veterinarians that worked with me that they didn't want to become involved because they didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't know if they would be in trouble by reporting. What if I'm reporting somebody that didn't do anything wrong? And these laws take away that part of the process for you. You're mandated to report. So as long as you're doing it in good faith, you're protected by the law. I had an experience with one of the veterinarians that worked for us where a lady brought in a cat that had been strangled by the woman's, uh, I don't know if it was a husband or the boyfriend, but the significant other, he was clearly abusing the cat to control her. She brings the cat to us, says that this happened and the veterinarian didn't do anything because she was afraid to get in trouble. And to me, again, morally and ethically, to me, my concern is, yeah, I want to protect this cat and I want to protect this woman and sending this woman back to the situation. And in the end, the woman surrendered the cat. But you know what will happen? They'll get another cat and then the cycle is going to continue. So if this, if this mandate had existed back then, that veterinarian would not have had a choice she would have had to contact somebody. And then potentially we could have saved somebody from a domestic violence situation. Yeah, that's a really powerful story that likely resonates with several of our listeners where they've mm -hmm. been either witness to or potentially in the situation of not knowing what to do. Yes, not wanting to get involved, potentially feeling the burden of our 
environment being so busy that it would be a hassle to get involved, but knowing that there's an increasing number of states that require reporting is important. Where does the veterinary team fall in outside of the veterinarian? Is this legal responsibility coming down on the veterinarian and their license, or are your licensed professionals like your veterinary technicians obligated to report that up to their veterinarian that they're operating under? So the responsibility falls on the veterinarian, at least in Ohio. The veterinarian is the one that is supposed to file the report, contact the authorities, but there has to be protocols created within veterinary clinics in case a veterinarian is not there because things can happen after hours. Things can happen when the vet is not there and the veterinary team is there. Somebody's coming in for a visit after hours or something is happening and they see it They cannot get a hold of the veterinarian. They need to know who to contact. Um, And in general, depending on the time of day, you want to contact the animal control officer because they're the ones who deal with it. If you feel that there is a danger, you want to call the police. If it is uh, an issue with children, contacting child services. Overall, if you do not know how to contact, again, the Link Coalition page has really good step-by-step information on who the correct person to get a hold of is. And when in doubt, if you think somebody's in danger, just call 911. Yeah, this would be really important for hospital managers and operation managers to have an Mm -hmm. idea and and something in place that clearly communicates a chain of command and a protocol so that there's not that, well, I just didn't know, and that we can get this resolved, that human animal bond is very powerful and we can be their first line of defense against ongoing abuse. So definitely very important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from some research that I had done last year from the National Link Coalition, they had said that about 71% of women in domestic violence shelters said that their animals were harmed or threatened, but not many shelters were accepting animals with these people. So uh, there was only about 19% of shelters that the victim could bring their animal to. So approximately 45 to 50% of people were not leaving the situation because they didn't want to leave their animals behind. And I can totally understand it because a lot of these people, those animals are like their children, right? So I am a mom. So I look at it from the perspective, if I'm being abused, I'm not going to leave my child behind. I'm only going to leave if I can take my child with me. Well, to some of these people, these animals are their children. So they are not going to leave and leave their child behind. Are there resources that veterinarians or veterinary clinics can provide these clients with where their pets can go in the interim period if the shelters in their area do not take in them as a unit? Yeah, so there are different organizations uh, that can be found online. There's redrover.org, there's safeplaceforpets.org, don'tforgetthepets.org. These are just a few of the resources for victims that people can go into and then try to see where they can go, what their options are. Um, At the very least, communicate with somebody that can help them try to get to a safe place. And these are resources that are really nice because they have an escape button. So if you are on your phone, if you're on the computer and the abuser is coming in or somebody else is coming in, there is a quick save exit button that you click and it deletes it off the history. So nobody can see that you were even there. Because that would, to me, I would, I would, if I was a victim, I would be concerned that my abuser can go online and see my search history. You know, abusers are very protective and they're just looking over uh, everything that the person does. 
So things like that help bring the ability to victims to seek help and seek resources. I hope that if anyone's listening and they're thinking, well, what changes in our practice can we make? It sounds Mm -hmm. to me that having a plan for the staff, how to handle situations, work on communication skills, on defusing intense situations, but getting information, asking the right questions, that's very important training. Also, what's available in your specific community as resources to help potential victims out of that mm-hmm. sounds really important. Yeah, absolutely. There are some places even here in Ohio where there are some human shelters that are coming in contact with animal shelters to where maybe the animal cannot go with the victim to their shelter, but at least they will be safe. And once they're in a safe place, then they can be reunited. And that gives them a little bit, again, of the ability to leave knowing that their pet is going to be safe. Yeah, that's very important. So this may be a question that makes you a little uncomfortable to answer, but I'm curious if you would share with us some of the specific characteristics or injuries that you see in animals that have had abuse or cruelty inflicted upon them. Yeah, so... The most common ones are going to be fractures, right? We have seen many dogs that come in with fractures, and it's not the current fracture that is just a concern. It's a history of fractures. We had a dog many years ago that came in with a fractured leg, and when we took x-rays, there were multiple fractures in other bones of the body. There were fractured ribs. There was a fracture in the hip. So that tells us that this animal has been abused over time. Um, The cases that have been the most impact have been some cases that we have seen of sexual abuse to animals. Mm. And those have been pretty, pretty severe, pretty serious. Both of the biggest cases that we saw were actually sent to us by other veterinarians that did not feel comfortable pursuing it. They didn't tell us that's what they were sending us, but they sent them to us. And then after examination, it became obvious that was the primary concern. And websites like the the ASPCA website and then Again, contacting veterinarians that are in forensics to understand what the patterns are, what the things are that you need to look at. Both of these cases, the biggest telltale was the fact that the history did not make sense with the findings in the patient. Mm -hmm. The one dog, the people said that it had been hit by a car. Well, anybody that has seen a dog hit by a car knows that they're going to have frayed nails, that they're going to have road rash. They may have some broken bones, some bruises. This dog did not have anything like that. Mm-hmm. All of the injuries to this dog were in the dog's rear. Um, and then another one was a dog that allegedly had fallen and hit herself on the abdomen. And that was causing her to bleed profusely. And after examining her, there were no bruises in the area where they explained. Um, in that case in particular, I don't have a problem talking to people and trying to get information from them. I don't have a problem going to them and saying, I know that what you're telling me is not true. So I need you to tell me what's going on. Not in an accusatory way, not in a aggressive, abrupt way, just in a let's level. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help your dog. And the person that harmed the dog told me that that's what they had done. And then we were able to get help for the dog and get help for the individual. In that case, the individual was a minor. So very important to recognize it. Very important to do something so that we can put a stop to that. Um, 
Yes, they tell our children, see something, say something throughout the schools. And this is really our most vulnerable, our children and our pets. Yeah, see something, say something. Well, it's a really deep story there. I'm sorry. Uh, No, no, it's important (laughs) for people to understand. But it's reality, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's reality. And the thing is that I, for instance, gave a talk to the veterinary students at Ohio State. And it was a veterinary forensics class. So I was very explicit with everything. Here's the pictures, here's this, here's that, here's everything that happened. And one of the students came up and a feedback that she gave about the speech was that everything was really good, but they would prefer if there was some kind of warning, hey, this is going to be about this. And I did not want to sound insensitive, but my answer is when that dog walked into that door, it did not come with a warning. Right. I did not get a, you know, warning. There's a sexual abuse dog about to come into that room. I had to walk in and get the impact of, okay, this is what I'm dealing with and then actually deal with it. So we have to recognize that these are things that happen every day and we are probably going to see them and we have to know how to deal with them so we can advocate for our patients. Yeah, opportunities for practice communication and stressful dynamics are really important for the hospitals training and ongoing training once we're out in the real world, for sure. Right. You mentioned finding a veterinarian who has forensic training. Is there a resource online where if someone wants to reach out to someone like you, um, Mm -hmm. that they could go to find who might be closest to their geographical location or just resources in general where they can reach out and contact someone with your level of expertise in this field? There are some people that have been at this a lot longer than I have. Plus also that's what they do, right? Victory forensics is a passion for me, but I also do the mobile clinic and spay and neuter and all of that stuff. There are veterinarians that are amazing that all they do is veterinary forensics or at least the majority. Dr. Melinda Merck, for instance, she is a pioneer in the field of forensics. She gives a lot of talks and she does have a, an online consulting agency. So people can look her up and find information that way. I'm personally trying to make myself more open, more available for people to be able to to ask questions, to request consults. If somebody needs help with how to write a proper report for court, or I have this dog that I need to do a necropsy and I I don't know exactly how to approach it, things like that. I'm very, very welcoming to any veterinarian that wants to do that. Technicians, any other animal professional that wants to learn more about it, um, I'm here for them because we need more people looking out for our animals and looking out for our community. The courses with the University of Florida, right? I did the master's in veterinary forensics, but you can also even get a certificate in veterinary forensics. So there are different ways that people can can get more information and can learn about other people in the field that they can use as resources for individual cases. I would imagine that it's extremely important to collect images and Mm -hmm. document like you said, the language describing the findings of the physical exam in a very concise, descriptive way without bias for those reports is um, often a challenge, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking as many pictures as you can is always great. You can always 
eliminate pictures. You can't create them once the case is done. So taking tons and tons of pictures, you brought up a great point, which is eliminating the emotion in the medical record, right? We don't want to say, this is horrible. We want to say what we're seeing. We want to say that there is a wound, that there is a track, so that whoever is reading that report knows that we are being objective. It's okay to be passionate, but we're not being emotional about what we're writing. We are being fair, and we are evaluating the evidence for what it is. So another important thing is the topic of health checks. So contacting the Humane Society or the animal control officer to do health checks. So people, again, get into the mentality of this dog may be injured, may be abused or whatever, but I don't want to get this person in trouble if they didn't do it. You're not getting anybody in trouble. You're just doing a health check. All you're doing is sending somebody to make sure that the pet is okay, that they're okay, that they're able to provide for the pet. And yeah, sometimes people are going to be upset and angry about it, but you would be surprised at how many times people are actually happy that you cared enough that you sent somebody. We had a case of an elderly lady that had a dog with a fractured leg and some neighbor was concerned that the caretaker was abusing the elderly lady and had hurt the dog. So I contacted the animal control officer, explained everything that happened. He went over, sat down with the caretaker, sat down with the elderly lady and found out that there was nothing wrong, that nobody had hurt anybody on purpose. And they were all very happy that we cared enough to send somebody there to check in on them. We've had cases of animals that come in and they're sick and the owners decline treatment and it will happen two, three, four times. So we have sent a animal control officer. One of the worst ones that we saw was a man that had over 150 cats in his house, many of those cats dead. And he was an incredibly abusive rescuer hoarder. And us sending that health check helped put the steps forward so that could stop and those animals could be rescued. So health checks, you know, contacting the animal control officer, contacting somebody to investigate, it doesn't mean that you're accusing anybody of wrongdoing. It just means that you want to make sure that everything is okay. And extends beyond even the pet, the well-being of the household. And maybe it isn't intentional neglect. Right. And it gets them resources that maybe they didn't even know they needed. It is a heavy subject. I really appreciate your time and sharing this important subject matter with us. I hope that our community's resources work collaboratively with the veterinary field and that the veterinary field does their due diligence and reporting these situations appropriately so that the end result is less harm to animals, less harm to the human-animal bond, and less harm to the humans that might be the step-up crime. Thank you very much, Dr. Gonzalez. Thank you so much for having me. At Think Anesthesia, we know you have many educational opportunities, and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast interview with Dr. Gonzalez. If you'd like more information or a heads up when our new podcasts are launching, as well as our other material, consider subscribing to our newsletter at www.thinkanesthesia.education. This will provide you a monthly update of the new material, as well as access to our race-approved educational portfolio. Should you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please do not hesitate to contact us at thinkanesthesia at jurox.com.